their doorways and windows into new worlds. And yeah, it's so amazing that food can do that. And that's why diversity in food media is important. Today on Dirty Linen, we are commencing a mini series celebrating new voices on food, edition two or volume two, uh, presented by the Diversity in Food Media Collective and edited by Lee Tran Lam. Lee Tran, I actually can't believe you haven't been on the podcast before. Well, I'm honoured, I'm on it. It's not about the weight. The fact I'm on it is just so amazing. So I'm happy I'm on it now. So uh, Lee Tran Lam is a food writer, a podcaster, a change maker, editor. Um, I'll just rattle off some of the places people can find you, Lee Tran. So um, recently done a podcast with the Powerhouse Museum around food history and um, it's ace. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm a fan and subscriber to your Patreon podcast, Crunch Time, which um, is a really great roundup of what you've been writing, eating, working on, thinking about. Um, and you're one of the OG food podcasters <laughs> with your unbearable lightness of being hungry pod, um, which I've really enjoyed over the years and I'd say has been an inspiration for what we do over here oh, on wow, the Deep wow. in the Weeds Network. So thank you for everything. Oh, my gosh. Thank <laughs> you for that amazing, generous intro. No worries. So let's crack on. So we want to celebrate uh, New Voices on Food Volume 2 um, and the, presented by the Diversity in Food Media Collective. Why do we need this book? Oh, wow. I think Australia has such an amazing multicultural food scene, don't we? We're so lucky. I can walk down the street. I can get koshari, which is Egypt's national dish. I can get Kotu roti from Sri Lanka, which is sort of like if you had a stir fry, but instead of noodles, you kind of had like roti strips. Like there are so many amazing things. We are so lucky to have, you know, appetites in Australia that we can fulfill in so many rich and diverse ways. But food media does not always reflect this. Like I was talking to my friend Nick Jordan the other day, who's a food writer, and he does this amazing culinary map of Sydney called Have You Eaten? And he was talking about some Somali pancakes he enjoyed. And I thought, I have never had Somali pancakes. I want to have Somali pancakes, but I don't think I've actually ever really read about Somali pancakes. And I just think, you know, and I'm someone who like covers food for a living. And I think, well, you know, unless you're maybe from the Somali diaspora, like, maybe you don't know about Somali pancakes and maybe you want to, like maybe you want a food media that is so wide ranging that you learn about Somali pancakes. You learn about where to get them from. Like I think about how I never, never really knew about koshri until um, a Melbourne based writer, Audrey Bourget wrote about it for SBS food. And it's very interesting multicultural history. Like you've got this Egyptian dish that's got pasta in it it's got a spiced tomato sauce it's got fried onions it's got lentils it's got chickpeas you know how did that end up being the national dish of Egypt and it also happens to be vegan so I think you know on a selfish level I just think you eat more deliciously if you know about the wide range of food out there but I think also as a culture we benefit if we also have a wide and fascinating and 
diverse diet that we can enjoy. And also for the people who run these businesses, um, you know, it's harder to sell koshri, I guess, if a lot of people don't really know about it and may not be as open to it because it's just not on their radar. Mm. So what do you think have been or are the barriers to having a more diverse food media, to telling these stories, investigating these pancakes? Yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, there are a few things like media as a whole is very under-resourced. It's been an industry that's just been, you know, having to deal with job cuts and dwindling budgets for a very long time, which is to do with how digital um, media or the internet has really cut into um, print uh, media and it's – Budgets. I'm not going to get too spreadsheety and boring about that, um, but it just means there's kind of less money. And sometimes when there's less money around, you can't hire as much staff. And then the staff you do have, you know, they're a bit stretched thin. And they, they maybe it's easy just to do the things that have always been done in the way they've always been done. So maybe you only cover corporate steakhouses because that's always gotten coverage, or you only cover you know, high-end Western tasting menu restaurants and that's your vision of what a good restaurant can be. But, you know, um, also through Nick, I found out there's this Yunnanese noodle restaurant in the city that does um, just incredible noodles. They have these uh, mala-style spicy potatoes which look like uh, crinkle cut chips with amazing uh, spices and chili throughout it. And actually, I ended up writing about it, just like a brief paragraph for um, Good Food in Sydney did like a roundup of like alternative awards uh, to the Good Food Guy, you know, to the um, typical awards like Restaurant of the Year and Chef of the Year. And I nominated it for like most slurpable noodles. And uh, when I rang up the owner, her name, um, I think is Wing Kang, and she was like, oh, my God, thank you for, like, even thinking of me. Like, I don't think, it, besides Nick, who wrote this great story about her for SBS Food, no one had ever really contacted her for about her food. And I was just like, people should be ringing her every week, you know. Uh, we should know about how she puts, you know, pea jelly and chili oil and these pickled vegetables that she gets from Yunnan through these um, noodles and it's just so slurpable and bracing and delicious. Um, You also want these places to survive so, you know, media coverage can really help. So you're really aware that you do have a certain responsibility even as, you know, I'm just like a tiny, tiny bit player. I'm just a freelancer. Um, but who I choose to cover can have some consequence. Absolutely. And I, I'm just looking at the first volume of New Voices on Food, which we should say is published by Some Kind Press. And the blurb on the back says difference. It's what makes us stop, think, step outside ourselves and question what we do, who we are, what we believe in. Difference isn't just good. Difference is everything. What does that mean to you? Oh, wow, wow. Uh, before I go further, I should correct myself. The A Yunnanese noodle restaurant owner, her name's Wing Yang, um, and the restaurant is called Yoon. Um, anyway, yeah, difference. Oh, my God. Like So editing that first one, and we open it to the public. You could submit as long as you were from an underrepresented background. And the variety of perspectives and experience, you know, I had the 
honor of reading about and, you know, publishing through that book was incredible. Like, um, I think of we had Ahmad Hakim who grew up in this part of Iran which his family has had like a thousand year history with. And they lived around this reeded lake and her, his mother would take the scarf off her head and like scoop it through the lake and like catch these like little fishes um, through her scarf. And he talked about how they had, um, I think they had buffalo and they would um, uh, cook soft dates in buffalo butter. Um, you know, he just conjured all these beautiful experiences and um, images of how they would, you know, maybe farm for the day, but they would bury watermelons in the earth. And once they were hot and sweaty, they'd pull out the watermelons and they were just so refreshing after just, you know, um, you know, uh, sweating uh, all day and getting to enjoy that um, very cool watermelon. And then he talked about how he had to flee Iran because he advocated for um, education rights um, for no, for minorities, which the authorities didn't like, and his friends had been executed for you know doing similar things. So he fled, I think, first via Syria and then to Jordan, and he had to like hide under a bus um, to get through. Um, and I think he was interrogated at one point, uh, but he finally made it to Australia to become. A chef, and you know, I think we really need to know about these experiences. Like, I think um, being open to what happens in the world is really important because we are citizens of the world. But also, I mean, I connect to that because my parents are re refugees. Um, my dad, you know, the first time he tried to flee Vietnam, he was thrown in a labor camp for six months, and he said you were just constantly hungry for six months. Um, my mum fled, you know, she's a so-called boat person and she nearly died at sea and she was just very lucky that the boat they were on actually got raided by pirates and pulled them ashore. Um, but both my parents ended up in Australia because the refugee policy at the time was actually really humane, you know, it was really humanitarian. I remember my dad saying at the Thai refugee camp he was at when he finally made it, um, there, he said, Australia was the most humanitarian country to approach his refugee camp. And uh, it's very sad because in a few decades, we've completely um, undone that reputation with, you know, the UN has rightly criticised the way we um, cage people in detention centres and how we mistreat them and how we've kept some of them locked for, what, close to a decade? They haven't done anything wrong. They've only just wanted a second chance at life. Um, and I think telling these human stories is really important. Yeah. I mean, you've said so much there. There's so much to <laughs> unpack. But I suppose if we pick up on that final point, I think, you know, and it makes me think of the recent conversation with Sean Christie David that we had on this podcast around you know, Afghan social and this idea of making people visible because it is one way of, of dismantling racism and showing that, you know, there's much more that connects us than divides us. And if we think about how embedded, you know, Vietnamese cuisine is just to take one example of, you know, a refugee story that is, uh, that, you know, out of, out of pain and difficulty um, has, you know, enriched Australian 
culture in so many ways. It's impossible to think of Australia's um, cities and towns without Vietnamese people and Vietnamese food now. And you just think, well, generosity is um, is so enriching for the people who are generous, as well as hopefully, um, you know, creating positive difference in, in those who, you know, initially receive it. Um, and can I just um, quickly interrupt in that? That is, you know, partly responsible uh, because, you know, that only happened in a way because Malcolm Fraser, who was a prime minister at the time, said we um, we have a duty to um, let these people come to Australia, these refugees, these Vietnamese refugees. And he did that knowing that, like, 90% of people would probably be against this, but he thought there was a moral obligation um, to let people um, take refuge in Australia, uh, which took real guts. That's why when he died, like a lot of um, the Vietnamese community quite publicly paid tribute to him. And then you think of, you know, the politicians we've had in the last, what, decade or so have used refugees as a very cheap uh, political target to, you know, using that kind of xenophobia. I mean, I think of John Howard, um, you know, in the early 2000s using the Tampa, um, you know, the people on the Tampa boat and saying, you know, we will determine the circumstances in which people will come here, um, you know, playing off very xenophobic ideas. And then you compare that to, you know, Bob Hawke crying on TV after the Tiananmen Square massacre and saying how we have to give people refuge in Australia because of what happened in China. Like these are very different political positions that have big consequences um, for our culture and for our food scene. And yeah, the fact that people have been caged for such a long time for not committing any crime, it's it's just unbelievable. Yeah, well, I mean, at... at in essence, it's the difference between humanising and dehumanising as, you know, your um, the quotes you picked out so powerfully demonstrate. And, you know, I, I've just spent, well, I've, I've just co-written a book with Hamed Aliari, uh, his book Salamati, which I helped him write. And he's came to Australia 10 years ago, for, you know, had to leave um, Iran urgently, ended up arriving in Australia by boat from Indonesia and he is still here on a very insecure visa um, which impacts his life in a daily way, um, impacts his mental health um, and I think, you know, also impacts my mental health in a way that it makes me feel dispirited and ashamed Um uh, yeah, where I feel like he's he's not he's not in the Australia that I want to live in, which is an Australia that that fully welcomes and supports refugees, not only because of what they will bring to our community, and he's such an amazing contributor even under these difficult circumstances, but because it um it, it yeah uh, being mean and tricky and ungenerous diminishes all of us. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And Hamed is amazing because he uses his own um, venue to try and employ refugees because he knows how hard it is to get work once you're in Australia. And maybe your CV says Tehran and it doesn't say Melbourne. And, you know, your job opportunities are 
very limited, even though your skills might, um, you know, uh, say something else. Yeah. And I had lunch there yesterday. So anyone who can should go to Salamati in sunshine. Yesterday, I ate the eggplant omelette with lavash, which is so delicious, and also the falafel plate, um, which has beetroot dip on it. And um, it's just, yeah, so good. With Shirazi salad, beautiful with pomegranate seeds. Everybody should eat that food. <laughs> um, so, Lee let's get back to the way that you put this book together. Is there, how do you curate it? Because you know, when we think about difference, there's a lot of it. So how do you narrow it down and work out which stories are the right ones to, to fit into this book? Yes. So with the first one and also the second one, which probably will be physically out once this podcast airs, is um, it's interesting we had two different refugee stories, which I think were both compelling and just very important to tell. Um, and I think with the second one, we had Anna Haziva, who I think will be on your podcast, and she talked about how she was living in Moscow and marvelling at the fact that she could get Vegemite there because her husband's Australian. And in her story, she kind of talks about her ongoing relationship with Vegemite and what that means. Um, but then suddenly within a matter of days, um, because of uh, you know Vladimir Putin's decision to um, invade Ukraine and all the upheaval that co that caused an uncertainty and sense that you weren't really safe, that at any time you could get in trouble for, um, you know, speaking out against what you felt was an unjust war. Um, um, you know, she, it really affected, you know, should I buy a train ticket that, you know, or a train pass and how long will it be valid for? How long do I want to stay in Moscow? It doesn't feel really safe. And then she eventually ended up fleeing with um, her young child and her husband um, to Istanbul. And, you know, they were carting food around because they just kind of didn't know what, what situation they would be in and when their, you know, their, the money they had on their cards might not, you know, be accessible anymore. Um, and thankfully she ended up in – Australia and she's done some really great things, um, some great fundraisers and, you know, her story tells a lot about how, you know, your life can be really upended in a short amount of time um, because of political circumstances that you had no say in um, and made really vulnerable. Uh, but she also tells a really incredible story uh, about resilience, about um, a quite funny story about her on-again, off-again <laughs> relationship with liking uh, Vegemite. Um, I think with that one story, she just conveys so much and you also feel, you know, uh, as you say before, it is about humanising these experiences. Like it's easier to accept refugees um, when you know their story or you accept their story. And this was so evident when the world like immediately showed support uh, for the people in Ukraine and what they went through. And then some people questioned, well, why is it other refugees in other war zones did not get that immediate, you know, acceptance and offer of support? And so, yeah, I think that is why it is important to um, tell these stories. And it's easier to connect with someone when you feel that they are a human. And, you know, politicians love to kind of 
erase pe- people's humanity so they can tell convenient stories that turn people into bad guys or political footballs. But, um, yeah, we need to be reminded that, you know, the, these are humans that need to be helped out and given support. Are there any uh, people with particular difference that you wish you had more submissions from? Yeah, it is. It is interesting that even within a project where you're trying to advocate for diversity, I mean, the submissions that come in aren't necessarily diverse, like especially found in the first the first book where, uh, you know, we won't open it to everyone as long as you're from an underrepresented background. So you could be First Nations or you could have a disability or, you know, you lived in a household that spoke languages other than English. Um, but I found, and I can say this as someone who's like an Asian daughter with a fraught relationship with her mother about food, um, I found like, oh, we're getting a lot of stories in this mould. And even if all of them are amazing, I can't really publish 10 stories that are about Asian daughters and their fraught relationship with their mum over food. <laughs> so we, we did have to kind of actively go, okay, we have to – approach different communities and get the word out there and you you have to really really be proactive you know there's this myth that oh merit will be this magnet that seeks out the talent you need but no often the people who don't think they're talented enough are actually the people who are talented and might not actually submit or consider writing until you go hey I actually think you have talent and you you should definitely do this. So there is um, a lot of work that goes into just making people feel comfortable that they should consider submitting their story. Yeah, that's so interesting, you know, because when you were talking before about, you know, what are the barriers and I think you're pretty kind when you sort of spoke mostly about, you know, structural and financial barriers, but I would say there's all kind of all kinds of systemic racism that is embedded into all areas of our society and, you know, which includes media. I mean, it's, I think that sense of feeling worthy of um, being given a platform is, you know, it's a barrier for that person to overcome, but it's really something that, you know, more of us in society need to consciously be interrogating and unpicking. Yeah, for sure. And it's interesting what you say about institutional forces. And I think about things that people probably don't think are problematic at all. Um, And it's only when you kind of take a step back and go like, oh, that's interesting. I think about the restaurant review format, for instance, and there's such a big emphasis on wine and does this have a good wine list? And then you might read about a, a Thai restaurant and it gets marks taken off because it doesn't have really interesting wines. But then you think, well, should a Thai restaurant be judged on that? Like if you're going to a Thai restaurant, as my friend uh, Nick Jordan pointed out, he was like, maybe you want to know, do they have interesting Thai milk tea? You know, I read yesterday an old review of a suburban Chinese restaurant that got massive points taken off it for having a supposedly boring wine list. But if you're going to a Chinese restaurant, maybe you want to know, do they have an interesting oolong tea? Do they have some, like, really aged pu'er tea? Um, I think of when I had to do reviews uh, about 10 years ago for the 
what was then called the good living section, uh, which is now called good food. But I was told every time you write about a cafe, you have to mention the coffee. And so I would do it. But sometimes the place is just, you know, there's nothing interesting to say about the coffee. It was just like, you know, you have to devote half a paragraph to whatever coffee it is. And I think, thankfully, nowadays I write for the Sun Herald once a month, which is a Sydney Morning Herald's like Sunday edition. Um, and I've covered such a different range of places. Like I've covered like a Latin American canteen. I've covered a place that does, you know, Japanese breakfast. And, you know, maybe the thing that's more interesting than the coffee is like the matcha and sesame latte. Uh, maybe you go to a place and it's a Thai, Taiwanese place and what is interesting is they hand make their own soy milk or they serve like, oh, I went to a place recently called Hungry Poorly and I think they did soy milk with like roasted peanut in it and it was so delicious and I think the, the assumption that a place is only good if it has a good wine list, I think then kind of um, disadvantages a lot of eateries that have never really had a cultural reason to have a good wine list. Mm. I think the first principle of assessing a restaurant or a cafe or any sort of eatery is to take it on its own terms. Like what is it trying to do and is it succeeding um, on its own terms? And, yeah, I think it's – I think those things like does it have a good wine list or, you know, back in the day, does it have white tablecloths and cloth napkins and, um, you know, those – at first glance, perhaps neutral structures that you try to shoehorn places into. They, well, at first glance, they can seem neutral, but actually they're incredibly skewed and, and culturally specific and exclusionary in in so many cases. I think it's it's something that, you know, the Good Food Guide has been trying to grapple with, with, you know, bringing in hearts as well as hats. Uh, I think scoring in general, is something that people both love and hate. Some people don't want to, don't want any sort of scores, but I know that readers love a quick metric, but it is inherently flattening, I think. And if we go back to this idea that difference is everything, reducing anything as complex as the beautiful animal that is a restaurant to a number does seem so reductive. Yeah, that's really interesting because um, when I do the Sun Herald um, review, and usually I get to do, you know, a cafe or like a bakery. I've just done one about a place that does roti and like different kinds of roti inspired by maybe roti that the owner, you know, had in Singapore. Like um, it's a place called Cafe Kooks, but both spelled with a K. Um, and his partner is from Singapore um, and they have these like dippy eggs. And so he's done a version. This guy's name is Andrew Ray. Um, he used to work at Chin Chin and Long Chim. And he's done a version with roti soldiers. So like instead of like, you know, eggs, egg soldiers where you dip the toast, um, you dip these roti fingers into, you know, uh, gooey yolks and then you add soy sauce and you add um, white pepper. It's so yum. It's so yum, right? Um, And so these are the kinds of places I get to cover, you know, very everyday places, very accessible places. I did a place um, called Tento, which uh, specializes in this Japanese um, dish called Ochizuke, which has like a thousand years of history, you know, came from the need to revive 
old rice by like pouring hot water over it. And then over time, they started to add green tea and the people at Tento like really take it to this next level with these like sculptural kind of like rice baskets with like tempura vegetables um, on top of their Ochazuke. Um, but, you know, getting a chance to write about Ochazuke is really nice because there aren't many places that write about it. But so the interesting thing is um, I used to have to give a place three stars or four stars or whatever. And then we just took the scoring off. Like I can't even remember when, but it's actually not affected like how people receive uh, what we write in any way. Like I think if you have an enthusiasm in the review, it's kind of clear. Like you don't, I mean, there's, there's, arguments for and against stars or hats or whatever Michelin does or all the other ranking systems do. But um, I think as long as we're not holding people back, like I actually believe, and this might be controversial, you know, I reckon a cafe could get 19 out of 20 if it's like a really excellent cafe. But some people might be like, well, a cafe could never get 19 out of 20 because they don't spend enough time on the fit out or they don't have ritzy enough ingredients. They're just doing sandwiches. But I think if a place does really awesome sandwiches, um, you know, like Bon Appetit put a sandwich shop as their best restaurant one year. I love the audacity of that. Like I love that it makes you reframe like what can be good food or good dining. Michelin is famous for giving recognition to like street food stalls and dumpling places. And I think if we had a more diverse um, reception of what could be considered like a top eatery or a top restaurant, it doesn't always have to be that place that you spend six months saving for, which, you know, I've been to those places. They are awesome too. You can't go to them every day. Um, sometimes the best places are the places you go to every day for a sandwich you love. And surely we deserve, uh, you know, a media landscape that um, celebrates both of those ways of eating. I guess scores are, they're like a, a shorthand language for what somebody should reasonably expect from a place. So I suppose, and this is almost contradictory, because what I was going to say, or what I am going to say is if we're all speaking the same language, then you know the, you could definitely score a cafe 19 out of 20 but if um you know the speaker if the 19 um thinks it's saying this is just a great sandwich but the person who's reading it thinks 19 well i'm gonna book there for my uh 50th wedding anniversary and invite all the family then you know perhaps there's there's that disconnect but i think if, yeah surely it's the job of of food media together with the audience to, yeah, to, to reframe the way that, um, yeah, we communicate and celebrate because, yeah, I, uh, I, be I also believe in the idea of a, a 19 out of 20 sandwich. <laughs> yeah, and when you think about, like, when you go overseas, like you go to Tokyo, you want to know where has the best egg sandwich, you know, you're excited about seeking those places out. Um, you're excited about going to like a convenience store because they actually have amazing onigiri and the wrapping is so ingenious that, you know, the way you're meant to tear the wrapping on the onigiri rice ball, um, even though it's been sitting on like a 7-Eleven shelf for a few hours, the seaweed is still crisp um, and 
not soggy and the rice is not soggy. And, you know, that's an experience that will only cost you a few dollars. But I would say it's one of the things you need to try when you visit Japan. And I think Japan is such an amazing example for, like, being able to celebrate the wide spectrum of food experiences because you've got those, you know, those sushi temples that are a lot of money. Um, But, yeah, then you can get um, a great egg sandwich or you can get onigiri. One of my favorite experiences in Tokyo is this um, place that's been run by the same brothers, I think, since the 70s, and they have this nori toast, which is – just normal white bread with the crust, uh, the crust cut off, and it's got uh, a, I think a sheet of nori, some butter, and a bit of soy sauce. Uh, maybe it's seasoned with a few other things, and it's grilled, uh, and it's so delicious. It's just a few, it's a few bucks. Um, it's almost like when I went there with um, Benito Martin, who's a photographer, because we were on an assignment for Gourmet Traveler shooting and arranging all these stories um, for their Japan issue. Um, he said it was like a Japanese version of like a, a Vegemite sandwich. But, yeah, I would recommend you go and have that. And I think that is like a 19 out of 20 experience. I want to make that as immediately <laughs> yeah. after getting off this call, yeah. I've got to say. Yeah, Um well, first of all, like lucky you getting to do that <laughs> in Tokyo. That's that is, um, yeah, truly excellent. Um, so, Lee Tran, people should be ordering and buying New Voices on Food Volume Two for themselves and everybody they know. Where can they do that? Yes, they can do that through. Uh- the Some Kind website. And before I mention that, can I just maybe quickly mention some of the people who are in it to give people an idea of um, what they can find? We did talk about Anna's story, but I also want to mention um, it starts up with a very funny piece by Aisha Marfor talking about her Arabic-speaking grandmother's, like, obsession with microwaves. Uh, there's Nesbitt Kagonda who runs um, Fenton Food and Wine in Melbourne, talking about, you know, growing up, uh, growing vegetables in Zimbabwe and helping feed your neighbours and how that inspired his farm-to-table restaurant uh, in Melbourne. Um, Angie Seen Young, who won the SBS Food Journey Through Food Competition that Diversity in Food Media uh, did, um, wrote a really moving piece about, like, when your grandfather dies and all the culinary knowledge that's lost with that. Um Maira, actually, who is on your podcast, uh, Maria Dalia Sonori wrote about um, her, the Brazilian women in her family and how they've preserved these um, uh, cookbooks over time, like putting recipes in it and recipes that have, I can tell, like an amazing backstory, like things called happy salad and sauce with seven things and bride's crown. Um Another favourite piece is Ellie Freeman talking about being um, a Korean adoptee growing up in Australia and trying to work out what her food heritage is and going to South Korea and, you know, eating there and trying to connect with that. And we end with um, Chris Jordan and Otis Carmichael from Indigenous Catering Company, uh, Three Little Birds, talking about, you know, um, cooking for incarcerated First Nation kids, um, teaching them about... Uh, native ingredients, um, 
things like curry myrtle, uh, kakadu plum, serving them kangaroo salami and, you know, the important cultural connections that that can do. And also, can I quickly say, there were some really lovely things that came out of the first book, like um, DM Tran, who wrote one of my favourite pieces, uh, about how her Vietnamese mother had a stroke and it actually made her a better cook. Um, That was like her first published piece of writing in the first New Voices book. And then she ended up, you know, writing for Broadsheet and SBS Food and Gourmet Traveller because of that. And also Mayungbo activist Arabella Douglas wrote in the first book about an Indigenous Chinese pop-up inspired by, you know, 60,000 years of um, Indigenous history uh, and wanting to put that together. And she finally got to do that at Melbourne Food and Wine Festival um, in 2022 with, uh, you know, serves of walkabout tea, serving rock oysters with yuzu jelly and finger lime. So it was really amazing that those possibilities came out of the first book. And also Roisin Call, who is from Etta and is so amazing, she wrote a piece in the first book and she was always going to be a superstar, but it's amazing in the last year she's had her Chinese-ish cookbook come out with Joanna Hu and that's just won a big award and she's now a good food columnist so it's really amazing to see how people's careers have progressed since um you know the first new voices on food book came out and I hope maybe with the second one if enough people support it um we could really see incredible stuff happen for the contributors uh who are in the second one Oh, my goodness. That's so – what an amazing endorsement of your project. I'm so excited to hear all that. Uh, so, did you say where we could get it? Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, sorry. Um, somekindpress.com. Amazing. We'll put the link in the show notes. Leetran, so good to connect with you always, um, but especially in this conversation. Thank you for everything that you're doing. It's such – Oh, such exciting stuff. It's so enriching. Um, yeah, and I think it would be a thrill for the people who are part of it, but it's just, th- yeah, thrilling, a thrilling addition to the food media landscape. So thank you and thanks for taking the time to chat to us today. Oh, thank you. And thank you for what you do, Danny, because you do a lot of um, stuff behind the scenes that people don't know about, like, you know, your amazing Twitter threads where you help out um, – uh, refugees, you know, get a phone card or a bicycle or help with their bills. Um, you know, people on international visas who aren't doing it so easily and you call out for help and people help pay their water bill or phone bill. Like, you you know, you're doing that behind the scenes among the amazing stories you write, like the one you did about the best cafes in Melbourne, which tells like an amazing multicultural story as well. Like I think you're such an amazing champion for um, diversity and, you know, humane, important stories in food media. So thank you for that. Uh, well, um, thank you for embarrassing me on my own podcast, but <laughs> I, re- I really, I really appreciate that. And honestly, it's, a, it's, um, I find it a privilege to connect with, uh, people with such diverse and interesting stories. I mean, I'm sure we can agree that it's so fun to write about food because you're just learning and being enriched by other people's heritage and experience every single day. And I just know I'll never, ever, ever get sick of that. Yeah, they're doorways and windows into new worlds. And, yeah, it's so amazing that food can do that. And that's why diversity in food media is important. Oh, amazing wrap up. Let's leave it there. (laughs) Thanks, Lee Tran. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you so much. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you.